brain might just help you learn something in more ways than one. Welcome to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Dr. Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist. He'll be your guide on this crazy exploration designed to bring life back to our existence. Can you become the element of change in an ever-changing world? Possibly, but you've got to listen on to find out. Now, here's the host of Absurd Psychology, Dr. Gary Bell. Welcome, everybody. Okay, today we're going to be talking about opioid addiction. You know, just to break it down, you know, morphine and codeine, among others, are opioids. Uh, There's synthetic drugs that basically produce the same effect as opium. And these narcotics are used for pain and sedation and other issues. And a person can become very dependent through long-term use and may be uh, diagnosable for opioid use disorder. Now, the fact is, some people can get addicted just by taking one. I mean, some people have a predisposition where they will be addicted to something like this. You know, opioids are a class of controlled pain management drugs that contain natural and synthetic chemicals based on uh, morphine, an active uh, component of opium. And these narcotics effectively mimic the pain-relieving chemicals that the body produces naturally. And they are most often prescribed as pain relievers, and that's usually how these folks get addicted and because they're very effective. Moreover, many studies have shown that opioid analgesic drugs are safe and rarely cause uh, clinical addiction or compulsive usage if taken um, as directed. However, you have to understand that morphine, heroin, codeine, and related drugs are among opioids. Morphine is, is frequently prescribed to alleviate severe pain after surgery. Fentanyl uh, can also be prescribed for similar reasons. Codeine can be uh, helpful for soothing somewhat milder pain, as are uh, oxycotton, uh, which is an oral uh, controlled release form of the drug, and uh, uh, proxyclophene, which is called Darvon, and hydrocodine, which is Vicodin, uh, hydromorphone, which is diluted, and mepurdine uh, is uh, Demerol which is used often, uh, less often because of its side effects. And so uh, Lomatil uh, is also another form, and it can relieve severe diarrhea, codeine, can ease severe coughs. Medication for pain may be taken in a whole variety of ways, but the preferred method is usually by mouth since medication taken orally is convenient and usually very inexpensive. So when this method can't be used, medication often is taken uh, rectally or through patches placed on the skin. Intravenous methods are used only when easier and cheaper methods are not available. And so patient-controlled pumps are somewhat used to allow uh, the patient to deliver the drug into the veins and the skin or to the spine. Uh, Interspinal administration is especially helpful when patients uh, who do not respond to pain medications delivered by other medications. So let's not get too deep into it, but the deal is uh, morphine, heroin, codeine, these are powerful drugs, folks, and they're on the streets. These are not just prescribed drugs. These are stuff that is now being made by – there's always been made by drug dealers, especially in Mexico, in China – and they 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 have pumped up the addictive quality of these opiates uh, 50 times or more. I mean, a lot of people are dying from this because the liver cannot process it. It just cannot process it. It's, it's, it's poison, and the liver has no way to get rid of it. 
And so it just sits there. And over time, just like many people that take heroin, they could stop taking it 20 years ago. But the deal is the damage has been done to their liver. And oftentimes they die at a very young age. Also, the uh, heroin is often taken uh, by needle. And obviously, that's going to cause all kinds of issues, including HIV and uh, hepatitis C. And, and all kinds of crazy stuff. So, you know, in addition to relieving pain, opioid drugs basically can affect regions of the brain that 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 uh, triggers a pleasure sense. And resulting in the initial euphoria that many opioids produce, this is an addictive quality. I mean, opioids basically take you from feeling like crap into Superman or Superwoman. All of a sudden, your self-esteem goes enormously high and you have no... Uh, uh, control over what you're doing. You, you just want more control and more power because your self-esteem suddenly grows because you're not feeling pain anymore. You're not having to feel anything. And so you basically go through that that and, and go through life as you're addicted to this and, and replacing your self-esteem with the opiate, which is a mask over a low self-esteem. You know, common side effects include constipation, sleepiness, nausea, vomiting, clouded thinking, respiratory problems, gradual overdose, and also obviously for many people it causes sexual dysfunction. And some other milder side effects may be avoided by adjusting the time when the doses are taken, such as taking them after a meal or at bedtime when a person may experience nausea or sleepiness. So, you know, the deal is clinical diagnosis for opioid use disorder is an individual must experience a pattern of opioid use that leaves the individual impaired or distressed due to at least two of the following within the previous year. Um, There's either the moderate or the mild symptoms, the moderate symptoms, or the severe. Okay, so the amount of opioids taken are a larger dose and for a longer period of time than intended or prescribed. That's number one. Another two is the want or desire to reduce opioid use exists or efforts were taken to reduce the opioid use. That says there's an addiction. A large amount of time goes into the procuring or using or recovering from the effects of the opioids. An overwhelming desire, urge, or craving to use opioids. And by the way, you only need one or two of these to to be addicted uh, to opioids. The inability due to opioid use to maintain obligations for your job, school, or home life. I can't tell you how many people have lost their job or are in grave jeopardy of losing their job because of their opioid use and the mood dysfunctions and the forgetfulness that follows. Also, continued use of opioids in the face of social or interpersonal problems that result from or are made worse by the use of opioids. Also, opioid use becomes prioritized to such an extent that social, occupational, recreational activities are even given up on completely or reduced drastically. Also, another symptom is the use of opioids occurs even in situations where it becomes physically hazardous for individuals. Uh, Continued use of opioids, even when the individual knows that the opioid use causes or exacerbates physical and psychological problems, they still take it. I can't tell you how many officers have had to confront somebody who's taking opioids. They think they're Superman. They have no sense of stopping themselves from doing bad things, and then they end up getting shot or somebody gets hurt because of this. They think they're super people. Also, there's another symptom, tolerance, and once again, it only takes two of these. 
tolerance and increase by one of the following. Intoxication requires greater control amounts of opioid use or the same uh, dose of opioid over the same amount of time results in weaker effects, which is often the case why, why people also follow into the addiction because they need more and more and more to get the affect and it never stops. The withdrawal uh, also takes place and that is a, a, a sign of a di- of a uh, of somebody that's addicted where the individual displays characteristics of opioid withdrawal um, uh, syndrome. Symptoms of withdrawal diminish as a result of the use of opioids and it hurts. It literally hurts to get off of an opiate addiction. You know, uh, the main cause that people get addicted is by attaching, uh, the, the opioid attaches to a group of proteins called opioid receptors, and it's found in the brain, it's found in the spinal cord, and it's also in your stomach and, and, and in the intestines. And so when these drugs link to certain opioid receptors in the brain and the spinal cord, they can block the transmission of pain messages to the brain. Now, who wouldn't want that? You know, in in addition, opioid medications can affect regions of the brain that decide what one perceives as pleasure, resulting in the initial euphoria or the sense of well-being that many opioids produce. And so taking a large single dose could could cause a severe uh, respiratory depression and it could be fatal. And many, many people die from that alone. You know, repeated abuse of opioids leads to addiction. There's a chronic relapsing, and, and I would tell you almost 92%, 92% of the people who get off of opioids get back on them, and they keep going back and forth and back and forth. They just can't resist taking these uh, opioids. So here's some uh, side effects, constipation, sleepiness, nausea, vomiting. Once again, we talked about the, 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 the uh, respiratory problems, um, overdose, sexual and now there are treatments, and, and it is a, a treatable disorder. And through treatment, it is tailored to individual needs that patients can learn to control their condition and live a normal, productive lives. Those people that are in treatment for drug addiction, like people with diabetes or heart disease, learn behavioral changes and often take medications as part of their recovery. Now, what you must understand is people that introduce these opioids into their system, are, and if they have a predisposition for cancer, for heart disease, uh, whatever, uh, diabetes, whatever it is, the opioid has a tendency to trigger that because of the stress that it places on our bodily systems. Our body cannot handle it, especially the liver. It just sits there. You know, there's also counseling and family therapy, psychotherapy, and support groups out there, and you can get those on it locally. You can get those through NA, Narcotics Anonymous, or you can get them um, online. You know, uh, results tend to be uh, better when more treatment is given, especially if people go into a facility where they cannot get to the opiate and they basically have to go through the withdrawal and they have to go through all the pain and the agony, but they have medications that will assist people through the addiction withdrawal and hopefully they will have learned their lesson and decide not to go back to the opiate. You know, the other thing is these painkillers make them forget about their impact on their family, their relations with their children. Uh, Opioids basically isolate the individual into themselves and that's all the person really thinks about is themselves. Some people become 
better performers on lower dose of opioids and then they begin to get addicted because they think that that's what they need to perform better. And the sad news is that causes enormous amounts of addiction. You know, there are different types of treatment plans and we'll talk about them here. We'll talk about them a little bit later, but the ultimate goal of treatment is lasting abstinence. But the immediate goals are reduction of the drug use, improvement of the patient's ability to function, diminishing the medical and social complications of the drug abuse. There are several types of drug abuse treatment programs. And by the way, uh, drug dealers love to lace marijuana, and other uh, uh, fat-based drugs that will lay in the body for a long period of time. They love to lace it with things like opioids, heroin, uh, meth. And the reason they do that with the marijuana, and by the way, OSHA doesn't go to your regular marijuana dispensary and sample the marijuana. So that that stuff is not uh, uh, FDA approved. And so the fact is, is that those, those, though those dispensaries may be selling it, most of their providers are drug dealers. And, and that's just the God's truth. And so, so you got to understand some of that stuff is so strong, uh, especially the stuff that you take orally, the marijuana that you take orally, but they want you to get addicted to the, the cheaper drugs and the easier drugs to manufacture. Opioids, number one. Uh, meth, Number two, uh, both of those can be laced in marijuana and people will form a predispositioned addiction to the opioid. So, you know, in prison, uh, you know, oftentimes that is where people get treated because they get arrested. You know, opioid addiction usually will lead to breaking the law uh, for many people. And, And it has a very high economic impact on society. It's $67 billion a year in uh, problems that it costs related to crime, medical care, treatment programs, social welfare programs, and time lost from work. You know, this opioid addiction is all over the world, and that is just a United States figure of $67 billion. And as you can see, they were trying to tie that to the health care program that they were trying to pass through Congress, and maybe they will someday. You know, most people who take prescribed opioid drugs do not become addicted, however. You have to understand that only 8 to 12 percent of patients, and I'm talking about patients, I'm not talking about people that take it on the street, who took opioids for chronic pain became addicted, but most opioid-related deaths occur when these drugs are combined with other substances. Um, You know, the review, and that includes, by the way, alcohol. You know, the current issue of 8 to 12% who become addictive is not the substance or its availability from physicians who prescribe it all too liberally. The critical and crucial matter is the pre-existing personality of the addict. The truth is a lot of these people that have this addiction are depressed and are anxious people and they want to get rid of that so bad. And so what they do is they turn to the opioid to do it rather than try to do it cognitively through therapy or through an antidepressant, which is not addictive. You know, in treatment, the focus should be first on safety and detoxification and then abstinence. And that is what a great doctor will do. If they're going to prescribe an opiate, they're going to get a way out and they're going to control it. But many of these doctors don't. They just throw opiates at the patient and let them go and go and go and take and take and take. And that is abuse. And that is the wrong thing to do. And it goes way against the Hippocratic Oath. You know, 
it's, it's not likely that a significant number of cases of opioid addiction represents the tip of an iceberg of a massive irresponsibility in many instances, uh, like criminality. But over many years, people who are functioning irresponsibly uh, will get addicted. And they will keep that that uh, opioid around, and they'll get back on it and get back off it. They just keep it there. And they also usually have somebody who is out on the street who is able to give it to them uh, by them purchasing it. So what are some of the signs? Adults uh, 18 and over in the United States, uh, the prevalent rate of opioid use disorder uh, is, is around 0.37%. There are many opioid users that are incarcerated at any given point. And that rate really hasn't been found. You know, while gender differences have been cited um, twice as high in men than in women, um, the rates differ based on the type of drug. For, for legally prescribed narcotics, prevalence rates in men are only uh, one and a half times the rates in women. So here's the deal. Uh, usually, once again, opioids have a co-occurring disorder. Uh, usually, there's a number of disorders that occur with the opioid addiction. Most commonly, it's tobacco use, alcohol use, cannabis use, stimulant use, uh, benz- uh, um, uh, depression, dysthymia, anxiety, insomnia, antisocial personality, post-traumatic stress disorder, or a history of conduct disorder in childhood or adolescence. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about causes And once again, we're going to look at some of the signs so you know what you're looking at. And then we're going to talk about how to deal with it. Come back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Dr. Gary Bell is a licensed marriage and family therapist in Southern California, but he is here to help you no matter where you are. Visit drgbmft.com. You can schedule an appointment with Dr. Bell, and many major health insurance plans are accepted. Call or text Dr. Bell today at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com. Dr. Bell could help you take back your life in four to eight carefully constructed sessions. Stop coping and start living in the now. Call 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. Inspired, encouraged, and connected on our lively, award-winning, healthy living power hour, Star Style. Be the star you are with host and empowerment architect, Cynthia Bryan. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. 
If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back, everybody. Okay, we're talking about opiate abuse and the causes of opiate addiction. First of all, there's genetic factors. Uh, Family studies have shown that when an individual has a first-degree relative with an opioid addiction, they are more likely to develop the disorder than those who don't have a similar family history. Also, there's uh, indirect genetic influences. It, it basically appears that some potential causes may function through genetic influences. For example, temperamental qualities such as novelty-seeking or impulsivity or uh, um, uh, if they're believed to be inborn, meaning born within their own family, uh, they have a uh, link to an increased risk of opioid addiction. What that means is uh, daddy with daughter, that kind of stuff, uh, which is sick, but that's the way uh, people have done it sometimes. Uh, additionally, our nature influences what type of people we choose to be around. When, we, you know, While peers can influence our choices as far as the beginning and continuing to use a substance, we decide which peer groups to we, that we want to belong, and these peer groups can, can influence us and factor into the idea that it makes us cool to take the opioid, and they reinforce that idea that, hey, it's cool. You know, if you feel that, you, you know, uh, uh, coping factors uh, for individuals who have difficulty tolerating negative mood states is also a problem because they'll go to the opioid instead of deal with it through therapy or deal with it through a legal medication that treats a particular disorder like that, negative mood states, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um, all of those type of thing can be treated with non-addictive medication. However, unfortunately, some people will turn to their good old opiate and uh, every time they have a twinge in their mood and all of a sudden they think they're going to feel better because it gives them a surge of euphoria. Unfortunately, that euphoria makes them extremely self-centered, extremely caught up in themselves, lack empathy, lack understanding. It's almost like they don't have to make decisions except for, for them. You know, also... Uh, the pleasure experienced in the brain is another cause. Everyone enjoys the experience of pleasure. It's important enough for our well-being that there is a pleasure and a reward center located in our brains. And specific chemicals responsible for neurocommunication are strongly related to our ability to experience pleasure, happiness, joy, and excitement. So when we take a opioids, the resulting rush of pleasure we experience is stronger than that that we may normally experience on a daily basis. So here's some signs and symptoms of opioid use. Uh, Increased general anxiety, anxiety attacks, euphoria, psychosis, improved self-esteem, depression, irritability, lowered motivation. Now here's some behavioral symptoms. Opioids are used for longer or a greater amount than intended. Unsuccessful attempts decrease the amount taken, large amount of time spent obtaining, using, or recovering, and abandonment of very important activities. These are signs. Now here's some physical symptoms. Improved alertness, increased sensitivity to sensory stimulus, 
uh, constricted blood vessels, increased heart rate, high blood pressure, increased energy. Now, can you see how a person might die from this? Increased uh, heart rate, constricted blood vessels, high blood pressure, heart attack, heart attack, heart attack. Increased energy, decreased appetite, increased sexual arousal initially until they get to the overdose and then it goes away. Uh, physical agitation, difficult sleeping, and over-arousal or hypervigilance. These are signs that you are addicted to an opioid. And the effects of it is it has some uh, side effects, which is, uh, as we talked about before, fatigue, constipation, breathlessness, a sense of elation, bronchiospasms, uh, physical and psychological dependence, nausea, confusion, uh, depressed respiration, difficulty breathing, death, and uh, chest pain. Now, here's the withdrawal effects. Nausea, stomach pain, cold sweat, chills, vomiting, diarrhea, agitation, anxiety, muscle tension, shaking or quivering, trouble sleeping, enlarged pupils, and pain in your bones. Now, if you're a family member of someone who will probably deny that they have an opiate addiction, by the way, one of the ways uh, you can tell is they hide them all over the place. They hide them everywhere. Everywhere, so they're readily available. You know, after working with families uh, of opiate addicts, one of the primary ca- characteristic president, uh, presence is the negative enabling. Consistently, exposure to active addiction has the potential to make the most stable person somewhat neurotic. You know, most times, uh, the family and friends desperately try to sober up the the active opiate addict and these efforts almost always meet with failure because the most effective way to deal with an active opioid addict is often counterintuitive you know love for an opiate addict usually binds those close to them uh, traditional forms of compassion care concern become liabilities and and in many cases where family continues to provide shelter food money to an active opiate user addict these behaviors enable the addict to continue down the path of self-destruction. They need to be faced with hard decisions to stop or not stop because this addiction in- influences everybody in the family and is setting an example for all of the children if that's what they have. There's also few opioid a- a- addicts get sober without consequences. You know, if an opiate addict is provided with shelter, money, and occasional meal, there's little incentive for them to change. And often, family and friends tell, say that they, they provide loved ones with an opiate addiction money and shelter because they fear for what might happen if the addict is homeless. And they fear the opiate addict might face death or incarceration. Unfortunately, as soon as the person crosses the threshold to full-blown addiction, the risks become real regardless of the addict's station in life. And that means they can have shelter and food and they still are going to be susceptible because their brain is screwed. All right, there's two-sided irony operating on the situations. First, family and friends of an opiate addict play a part in enabling the addict's behavior to continue through their intentions or otherwise. And second, despite valid fears regarding an opiate addict's welfare, the actions of the family and friends do little to minimize the risks associated with the addiction. If the person wants to get off of it, they have to want it. And so you can't want it more than they want it. You know, so what you can do is hold them accountable until they decide they've, they're in enough pain that they, they will want to get off the opiate. You know, with a steady supply of money, an opiate addict is more likely to abuse drugs to greater frequency and quantity. 
You know, the, the opiate addiction progresses at a very fast pace. As tolerance to the opiates increase, an addict requires more and more and more to sustain the effect, and it becomes the center of their life, why they live. More potent opiates, which are what are now being uh, synthetically manufactured in Mexico and have been for a long period of time in China, are 50 times more powerful than a regular opiate medication. And so, you know, the, the, the form of progression substantially increases the risk of overdose and death. And at some point, money from the family and friends will not support an opiate's uh, uh, um, addiction. Because at this stage, they, they are very likely to turn to theft because you can't supply them with enough money to get what they need to get them through a day. You know, as they do this, they are basically living a suicidal lifestyle. And if you care about that person, don't feed it. Let them have a little bit of hard times. You got a better shot at getting them better than you do if you keep sheltering and, and giving them the medications. The other thing is if you can get them possibly into a treatment center, that's a wonderful thing. But once again, if they don't want it, it's, you're, you're pretty much shot. If they don't want it, they're not going to perform the program. They're not going to want to be there, and they're not going to get better. You know, family and friends who contribute shelter, money, and any other resources to an active opiate addict engage in negative enabling. Biggest problem. Negative enabling essentially means some form of contribution that allows the addict to continue progression into the addiction. Positive enabling, on the other hand, encourages circumstances and consequences that offer the best chance for their addict to get to to, uh, choose not to be addicted. You know, uh, do not engage in that negative enabling. And and, and it's a term that, you know, basically means that you, as a person, don't try to contribute to their well-being until they decide to take care of themselves. The other thing is, if, if you're a, friend, a family member or a friend of somebody who is uh, related to somebody who's an opioid addict or knows somebody, you want to seek outside support. You know, uh, family and friends of opiate addiction should seek outside support from qualified professionals such as a therapist, support groups like Al-Anon, uh, Narcotics Anonymous. You know, these individuals and organizations can offer guidance. Uh, for people in emotionally volatile situations. Now, Al-Anon is for the person that is living or having to deal with the addict. You know, when these support pillars are in place, family and friends are less likely to return to negative enabling. And it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing, though, the behavioral relapse in the family to go back to uh, negative enabling because there's guilt and shame involved in it. So, you know, these organizations can th- really offer uh, guidance for people in emotionally volatile circumstances. You know, if you work with qualified professionals or, or support groups, that you have a better chance of staying the course when it comes to refusing uh, to participate in a, an addict's life, an opioid addict. Also, offer the opioid addict uh, an opportunity to change. This principle allows family and friends to begin positive enabling Uh, Positive enabling refers to behaviors that encourage change in the person suffering from the addiction. Remind them of who they used to be. Remind them of who you miss. Remind them of what they could be. Remind them of their possibilities of what they're missing. You know, you want to let that person know you care about them, but you're not going to contribute to their addiction. And you let them know if their desire to change is there, you're more than happy to help them. 
you know, make sure to do your research before choosing a treatment center. There's a variety of treatment centers. The cost is not always indicative of the treatment center's effectiveness. But the first thing is, if they have health insurance, reach out to the health insurance company and find out how they support an opioid addiction and how they can assist you with that. You know, there's also nonprofit treatment centers. There's also 12-step recovery, Narcotics Anonymous. There's all kinds of sources out there, folks, if you deal with somebody like that in their life. You know, but once again, opioid addiction above all other addictions, and opioid includes heroin, is one that they go back to over and over again, even after they've been treated. It is, it is highly, highly addictive. Almost all opiate addicts do not possess the means to financially contribute to, to treatment. So if you're in a position to assist, do it. But without assistance of family and friends, many people with an opioid addiction would never have the opportunity to recover. And some do, and some do, but the deal is they got to want it, guys. If you're going to invest in it, they have to want it too. You know, one of the best times to offer help is when the opioid feels... Uh, uh, faces legal consequences. These situations are a big wake-up call and hasten them to, d- to change. And so this is something that you want to do. Also, if you're a family or friend of them, make other family and friends aware of the situation. There's a good chance most of them already know, but to be sure, inform other family members and friends about the situation. Let them know you appreciate their consideration and encourage them not to provide money or a place to stay for an active opiate addict. With the rest of the family on board and with all the friends on board, it will be increasingly difficult for them to get their support to continue their addiction. Some people feel ashamed talking about something like opioid addiction, especially a parent who feels that the addiction reflects poorly on them. But, you know, you got to know that addiction affects families from every kind of walk of life there is. You know, by choosing transparency over secrecy, you can have an impact on the course of that person. You know, I'm not saying that you can sober them up, but I am saying you can choose to refrain from the contribution to their lifestyle and their addiction. Another thing is if you're if 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 that opiate addict, there's a very real risk of incarceration, overdose or death. And you need to know this. Now, the first stage is usually experimentation. The second stage is social and or regular use. The third stage is problem use, and then the fourth stage is addiction and chemical dependency. And you need to be aware that these all happen very quickly. You know, uh, many addicts travel too far across uh, their addictions bridge to, to, uh, um, into the confines of jail or prison or even worse, death. It, it doesn't matter whether an opioid addict hails from a, a healthy or an unhealthy background. But once that addict takes hold, the risks are very present. The risks of incarceration, overdose, and death increases as that pattern progresses. Experimentation, social regular use, problem use, addiction, and finally chemical dependency. You know, recovery, every type of addict is, is a horrific to any family. It's all-consuming. It shreds the fabric of even the strongest families. But one of the toughest substances is the opiates. Now, once again, opiates include Vicodin, Oxycontin, uh, Percocets, morphine, heroin, and there are still others in the category that I talked about earlier. And, and so the reason that opiates are so difficult to stop abusing is because they literally hijack 
the, the natural neurotransmitters in your brain that you are born with because they are more potent. And now the hijacked neurotransmitters are running the show and continue to do so until you stop taking them. You become the opiate. You are not who you are on the opiate. While your, orig- you know, your original uh, neurotransmitters recover, it takes time, and that amount of time is different for everyone. So in the recovery process, that can be very painful. That The opiate changes how the brain transmits, and therefore it, it, and it, and it, it usually increases the muscle, which a brain is a muscle, it increases the muscle where the emotions are rather than where the logic is. And so it can be painful to get back to becoming a prefrontal cortex human being because that is not where the opiate is going to take that human being. You know, uh, while you're recovering, if you're an addict, you'll suffer from depression, a lack of energy, you'll suffer from insomnia, anxiety, lessened pain tolerance, and for a lot of people, it's just too much to deal with. And so they run back into the substance of the opiate. And there's always a, a, you know, a way to deal effectively, but many don't want to take the time to seek professional help needed, and as a result, most of them fail. They try to do it on their own, and all of a sudden, they cannot recover, or they go back to the opiate because the withdrawal is too much for them. You know, recovery from opiates is very difficult, and it requires a real commitment, but it is very possible. So developing a healthy and effective way to manage coping with stress is important. And this is something that professionals can really help with. They can help with utilizing all the coping skills that help manage the triggers, number one, and the relapse. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about recovery, overcoming the cravings, the triggers. Come back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Do you like what you're hearing on the show today? Dr. Gary Bell wants to help you no matter where you are. He's fast, efficient, effective, and has a no-bull approach to helping you in less than 10 sessions. If you're ready to change right now, drop everything and call or text Dr. Bell at 951-818-7856 or visit drgbmft.com today. You can also follow Dr. Bell on Twitter at drgbmft for some great insight and direction. Are you ready? Make that change. Pick up the phone or go to the site, 951-818-7856 or drgbmft.com. Remember, drgbmft.com. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. If you have a question for Dr. Gary or his guest, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. That's easy enough, but if you want to send an email, it'll take some thinking. Got a pen? The email address is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net. Or you can just click on Email Host on the Voice America page. Now back to Dr. Gary Bell's Absurd Psychology. Welcome back. We're talking about opiate addiction and the recovery. So, you know, in order to be successful quitting opiates for good, it's important to know how to manage stress, how to stay away from the people that you used to be involved with that use the substance. 
you know, starting an exercise regimen, you know, that's huge. You know, exercise regimen is awesome for the brain. People don't realize how much it helps our brain as much as it helps our body. It's almost uh, six, uh, 20 minutes of cardio is 60% of an antidepressant. You know, uh, if you do meditation, you know, yoga, whatever, prayer, whatever it is, something that calms you down, that's enormous because you're going to be able to get a hold of your triggers be- by becoming more aware of what your stressors are. You know, it's never a bad idea to attend uh, Narcotics Anonymous uh, groups and possibly getting a sponsor. Also, uh, leaning on recovering addicts for support. You know, opiate addictions can cause considerable damage to the brain as well as the body. As with any other type of damage, the body needs time to heal and repair from the opiate's effects. And, and during that time, a person will experience fairly uncomfortable withdrawal effects, which can easily drive them back to using again, as we discussed earlier. But overcoming opiate addiction means doing everything possible to lessen the withdrawal effects while engaging in pursuits that further support your recovery efforts. And with a little planning and lots of determination and responsibility, Almost anyone has a good chance of overcoming an addiction. So here's some recovery tips. There's a tapper technique, which involves a slow, gradual reduction in dosage amounts over time. And this approach can greatly reduce withdrawal effects since the body only has to adjust to small reductions as opposed to the complete absence of the drug. So the challenge lies in sticking to the plan and not resuming prior to drug use practices. Also, there's over-the-counter mem- uh, uh, remedies. Overcoming opiate addiction means getting through the aches and pains, the fever, the chills, and similar symptoms that develop. So Tylenol, ibuprofen, and other non-addictive pain-relieving agents can help alleviate some of the discomfort. But once again, you don't want to overdose. You take Tylenol in an overdose factor, and guess what? You kill the liver, and a year later, you're dead. You know, changing your daily routine, you know, that... Opiate uh, addictions breed a lifestyle of their own. So certain routines or habits or times a day, such as using opioids to go to sleep or using before leaving for work, you'll be replaced by healthy alternatives. So have a plan made out ahead of time that at the time that you're triggered to take the opiate, you actually do something healthy. Bupripnorpine, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over myself. Bupripnorpine is an opiate addiction treatment program and as an opiate replacement therapy. And once again, it, it mimics the effects of the opiates without posing a high risk for addiction. So the national, uh, if you want to look at that, go to the National uh, Institute on Drug Abuse. And it also can be administered by private practice physicians who are authorized to prescribe it. Psychotherapy. You know, opiate addiction means treating psychological component of the addiction. There is usually a psychological component as a co-diagnosis with opiate addiction. So oftentimes these people are in a psychological pain also. So that psychotherapy can help recovering addicts work through the issues that drive the need to use the opiates. Support groups are always helpful. They're invaluable because it gives you camaraderie and guidance and place to go to when your temptation is to do it. And there's also uh, detox treatment help for many opiate withdrawal effects prevent, prevent them from taking the first step towards the drug-free living. So that's when you need a detox program where you're an in 
patient facility and you go through the withdrawal with help of that program. Also, residential treatment programs for chronic opiate addicts. Overcoming opiate addiction requires intensive drug treatment help. So the structured comprehensive care provided through a residential treatment program where there are several people living in the home that had the addiction and are getting off of it, those long-term users maintain abstinence uh, for uh, for the long term if they're helping each other within that residential program. Oftentimes, the residential program are tied to Narcotics Anonymous where you go to meetings like that. You know, there's also outpatient treatment programs. Someone who's completed a residential program may benefit from an ongoing treatment provided through an outpatient program. Uh, Though less restrictive, the programs help addicts stay engaged in the recovery process while developing needed skills for coping with everyday life. But here's the deal. The best person to help somebody that's addicted to opiates is somebody who's recovered from the addiction to opiates. And so people that have recovered can give you a clearer view of what it's going to be like than people that haven't. And so they play a major role in helping their fellow person get off these drugs. You know, no amount of effort will help a person overcoming opioid addiction unless they receive the right type of treatment. And this is especially the case for long-time users. So understanding your treatment needs is the best step towards coming overcoming the opiate addiction. Now, overcoming cravings, one of the most difficult parts of recovering from drug abuse, alcoholism, or the combination of both comes after treatment. Leaving a treatment facility, returning to regular family life, social situations, work can routinely set newly recovered people back because all the triggers are still there. And there isn't, it isn't surprising, and, and it is to be expected, that considering what science has learned about addiction, that this is a problem. You know, addiction is defined as a chronic, relapsing brain disease that's characterized by compulsive drug-seeking and use of uh, despite harmful consequences. Consequences, and that's the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Also, addiction is a chronic disease because it is long-lasting and it cannot be cured, but it can be controlled. So relapsing means that a person will get worse and suffer a setback after improving or getting better. And it's a brain disease because it changes how the brain structures itself and is functioning and how it looks physically and how it operates. Drug or alcohol addiction alters brain chemistry and it can actually bring about physical and mental relapses long after they've been sober. So these responses can send an addict spiraling back to previous and destructive behaviors because they have these cravings. And this is a very dangerous territory for a recovering addict. So contrary to what many people believe, addiction is not a choice. Because relapse is a major component of addiction, some people go many years after treatment without any problems, but they're always aware that it could happen at any time. So relapse prevention teaches that two possible incentives to use drugs or alcohol are always looming in the background, triggers and cravings. So what are triggers? Triggers can be almost anything that the addicted brain associates with the reward of getting high. For some people, a trigger might be a stress created by work or family, or maybe the onset of depression or anxiety. For others, it could be a location, a bar, a a friend's house where they might have used drugs. Also, triggers can come in any form and may lead to substantial cravings like a happy hour billboard on the drive home from work uh, or uh, cheap hot wings or beer. 
might be all that's needed to induce cravings because those may be of something you used while you were on your opiate addiction. You know, you, maybe you got hungry or maybe it made you hungry for something certain or made you do something that you never do. And so those things will introduce themselves into your life and become a trigger. So a, a, a cross relapse from run, one drug to another can be extremely difficult to control. So taking pain medication after back surgery can trigger a, a previous heroin addiction. And this may also fall into the category of cravings. So what is a craving? Well, cravings are actual physical compulsions or urges caused uh, when dopamine, a neurotransmitter in the brain, is released, and that's dopamine. Dopamine is a chemical that is associated with your emotional response, pleasure, or pain, and it pay, plays a very important role in your reward-motivated behavior. Dopamine is a main ingredient um, in an antidepressant. And so when, you're, when uh, you take an opiate, basically what happens is that dopamine spews through the brain and the brain gets a high dose of euphoria because of that dopamine release that the brain has. And all of a sudden, we think that the opiate is an antidepressant and the cure-all. So in full swings, you know, cravings can be incredibly difficult to manage until a person develops techniques to avoid them as much as possible. So if a person is unable to avoid cravings, Relapse is almost imminent. So uh, a key element in, in uh, re- limiting relapse and, and in managing triggers and craving is recognize those triggers. This might seem like a simple thing, but because triggers can be absolutely anything, it is important to give thoughtful consideration to people, places, social situations, and any feelings that normally bring about the desire to use opiates. Over time, many people in recovery discover triggers that they weren't even aware of. And so learning what your triggers are and developing the ability to recognize them ahead of time offers an onset and the difficulty of those cravings. Also, you want to plan ahead. Once a person has a solid grasp of their triggers, they, they can act accordingly. You know, learn what your triggers are and developing the ability to recognize them ahead of time will help you. Also accept the urge. Rather than fight the, the intense craving to, to, to use the opiate, accept the urge and write it out. This By doing this, you're going to raise your self-esteem. You know, this overwhelming feeling to take an opiate won't kill you. Uh, given enough time, it'll subside. So many urges will disappear in 10 to 15 minutes. And if they do not remove yourself from the situation, which would possibly cause you to go back to using the opiate. Also, rational thinking. We've all heard the term uh, uh, stinking thinking. Challenge your thoughts when the urge arises and ask yourself, is this really what I want to do? Do I really want to wake up hungover, ashamed, feeling guilty, and riddled with anxiety? Thoughts like, there is no way I can fight this or I might as well have a drink or have an opiate and get over, get it over with. That is a, that is a bailout. That is a, that is a total... Nonsense. You need to build your self-esteem by developing the ability to not take it on your own and overcoming the craving. You know, distractions and replacement. If a successful or a stressful situation can be avoided, distractions are a great way to overcome urges. Create a list of healthy distractions that, that uh, like exercising that can help you. You know, a brisk walk or a run or swimming laps or calling a friend or reading a book or cleaning. Choose an exercise. Offers an added bonus from the boost of endorphins. This also makes the brain feel euphoric. 
you don't need the opiate when you can go for a nice brisk walk and guess what? You're going to have that euphoria. <clears throat> also, you want to participate in cognitive behavioral therapy. It's another incredibly useful tool that develops a positive skill set in recovery. And that means seeing a therapist because now we're going to take on our thoughts, our emotions, and our behaviors. And the, you know, the most important thing is that recovery from addiction takes time and relapse is a natural part of it. And just as experiencing triggers or cravings, there is a normal part of recovery. So instead of feeling guilty or depressed, staying focused and positive can lead to happy and healthy life. And that is what you want, folks. You want to have a happy and healthy life. Now, let's look at some of the things that uh, can affect us with you know, employers. You know, many employees have found success battling employee uh, uh, opiate use with policies and procedures for pre-employment testing or ongoing suspicion testing or post-accident testing. You know, especially if someone goes out on back surgery, you as an employer want to be doing some testing to see if that person is continuing to take that opiate. You know, an employee who takes uh, uh, an opiate tablet who's under a doctor's care, that's fine. But the employer needs to know that you are on that opiate because they might not want you there. You know, if you're in police or fire or something like that, the last thing you want to be is on the job taking an opiate. You know, uh, the, the, the other end of an addiction cycle is an employee who is in the same, uh, in some stage of opiate withdrawal. That is the wrong place to be. They're going to be very angry people. And by the way, people that have opiate addiction oftentimes, statistically, over 80% end up in a divorce scenario. And that's not what you want. Also, their kids will abandon them because they're so mean. They're so self-centered and they're so into their drug that they've become the opiate. They're no longer the mother or father the child once experienced. So they can't trust them anymore. And when you can't trust someone, uh, that makes people not want to be around you. And opiate people are very good at forgoing their responsibilities. You know, they just won't get it done. And if you're going to have somebody that's on an opiate as an employer, I can guarantee you their performance over time is going to go down as their opiate intake increases. You know, in perfect world, an opiate addict in the workplace would come to their employer and say, I'm in trouble and I need help before the positive urine test, before the incident or accident, and before the paramedics have to respond and give the employee uh, um uh, a, a life-saving dose of Narcan, you know, to, to counteract the heart and the lung-stopping consequences. You know, employers tend to be more supportive and helpful when you ask for help than when you just try to hide it and deal with it. You know, for those uh, uh, opiate-addicted employees who are too fearful, stubborn, or prideful to reach out for help and get treatment, their sense of denial, distorted thinking, minimizing, rationalizing, blaming behavior will lead them to discipline, to termination, death, often in a very short span of time, not to mention the fact that they will probably lose their family. So that's our show. Our next show is The Power of Gratitude. I want to thank everybody for listening. I'd love to hear from you. My email is drgbmft at sbcglobal.net or Twitter at drgbmft. Now remember, some people get enough exercise spending their day jumping to conclusions, flying off the handle, running down the boss, knifing friends in the back, dodging responsibility, and pushing their luck. 
Also, remember, try telling your spouse that you love the growth you experience because they challenge you to tell better lies. Thanks for listening. That's our show for this week. Please join Dr. Gary Bell for another edition of Absurd Psychology next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Now, go impress your friends and family with what you've learned today and have them tune in next week so they can be almost as smart as you. 